Welcome to the 16th episode of Who's Editing, a thought experiment in which my guest and I appoint ourselves editors of a comic book line at DC Comics, but the joke's on us because we can only use the characters of a specific issue of Who's Who, who made up these rules. And in fact, we must use them. I'm Siskoid, and I'll let you in on all the rules. Let's welcome my guest with which to create a line of books based on Who's Who number 16. Please welcome Steve Givens to the show. Hello, Siskoid. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. And I love, you know, editing books. <laughs> Why isn't this my job? Issue 16. Um, this is the one with Monel on the front cover. Yes. So as you can guess, this doesn't really have any A-list stars. Not really. Uh, and was that a challenge for you? The fact that these were um, sort of B characters? Yes and no. To be honest, there are quite a number of uh, borderline morts in this book. I mean, M for mort here, you know. There were some that were very they're very interesting uh, because they they forced me to rethink an approach to the character that I no, hadn't really thought about before. Yeah. It was a challenge in a good way, but it also was like uh, I ended up creating a series of books that I think would crash and burn <laughs> within a year if we tried to put them actually put them out on the stands. So the new 52. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I we say Mortz, but a lot of team members so like without their team, how do you actually make a, a series out of it? And there's a lot of new gods material as well. Yeah, yeah. We got three entries related to that. Yeah, well I started with the premise, okay, let me just create a, a series of books that I personally would be interested in reading. And again, which would mean that they would crash and burn within about six months because <laughs> I tend to have a singular taste, I think, but, uh, or, or at least limited taste compared to what, what would be popular. I think I've got some interesting choices and I, I can't wait to hear yours. Okay. Well, one more time, here are the rules to each episode of Who's Editing. Our line of books must include a monthly series for every hero character or team featured. In this case, there's also a gadget, but any non-HQ locations as well. We can give a villain or other entry their own series if we absolutely feel the need to, but we can only name a single villain from the issue to receive that honor. Imagine we're coming back from some crisis or other so we can reboot characters. We can use any continuities version. It's up to us. We can resurrect books, you know. Titles don't have to match the entries. Note that we are each pitching our own ideas, so we'll sort of end up with two possible lines of books. Listeners, you decide which books you'd actually want to read, and we'll actually play that game as well. We'll just have enough money to buy one title from the other editor's line. We got like 75 cents if we we're living in the 80s, or, <laughs> I don't know, $15 if we we're living in 2030 or something. <laughs> I'll be taking notes. So did you have a more specific strategy to share? Or it's just about just pleasing yourself. Yeah, well, I also found, and this wasn't a conscious choice, but I also found that I was, um, rather than completely obliterating what the character was and, and starting from scratch, more often than not, I was taking what was already there in the character and trying to find a different spin or a interesting writer and artist combination to work on the character with a different take or a different twist to the character in some way. The very few cases did I actually completely obliterate what was already there about the character or the place or the gadget and, uh, start from scratch. There are very few instances of that. Instead, I was like, okay, what can be done with this character that can make him or her a compelling read? 
you know. And we were talking a couple of weeks back, and you mm-hmm. were toying with the idea of relegating some of these continuing series as backups into maybe more, <laughs> yeah, more financially, <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> promising series. Did you end yeah. up doing that as well? Well, the one book that I was envisioning as a backup, I'm going to offer it up as a solo series. With uh, the uh, understanding that I know it will crash and burn okay. and then become the backup. <laughs> okay, that's fine. <laughs> As intended. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I decided to go a little nuts. Uh-huh. Um, I, I sort of guessed that you were going to be more traditional with your okay. with your work. So that gave me the opportunity to go, okay, let's, let's do something that other guests have done, which is blow it up. Okay. People who know me well know that I was a big fan of Amalgam Comics. Okay. That's the gag comic lines that... Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, they put out single issues in the wake of DC versus Marvel two years in a row. I'm not saying they were all good, but I love the concept. And ever since, I, you know, I've made it part of my FW Team Up podcast, so I'm a fan of Amalgam. In this case, I've asked, why was I hired to develop a comics line? <laughs> and I imagined the parallel Earth. I think it makes thematic sense. We've got the monitor in this issue. So, okay, on Earth, whatever. It's an Earth where Marvel, or Disney, I guess, has bought DC Comics. Uh-huh. They do want to merge them. <laughs> they want to merge that multiverse in some way. But they need a year-long transition event. And that's where I come in. I'm going to work for them a whole year. Both publishers have agreed to give up certain characters for the year. No one too prominent, according to Who's Who issue 16. <laughs> Uh, But the Marvel side is a little more daring. I mean, it's their deal, right? Gotcha. So these characters will be combined into a new Amalgam Comics line. It's not unlike Heroes Reborn in terms of setup, so there's a precedent. And at the end of the year, the event will make Marvel and DC merge more fully or perhaps just create a bridge between them, but keep them separate, which I think is probably the way to go. And the amalgamated characters will be released either in their old forms or, if they prove popular, reintegrate one or both universes in their new forms. Okay. I almost invited Ryan Daly on this episode because he (laughs) famously hated all the amalgam comics he ever read. He was forced to read, you know, for podcasts. Uh... But I'm not that cruel. I'm not that cruel, unless you hate them too, Steve. No, no, I didn't hate them. I like you. I there were some that I really loved. Uh, some that were like, eh. yeah, yeah. But no, no, I um, I'm excited to hear what you have to say now. That this is, it sounds like a way overly complicated premise <laughs> for this thought experiment. But you've been doing this for a while, so uh, you know what you're doing, and uh, you probably uh, needed to mix it up a little bit. A little bit. I just hope I don't pale too much in comparison. Well, I I sort of lean. <laughs> still on the DC origins of the character. You know, it's still still Mm -hmm. a who's who show. And with issue 16 of who's who, we have to include a minimum of 17 books in our line and a maximum of 18 if we get a bonus book. So Steve, I'm going (laughs) to hand it off to you. It's a lot of work if if this were real. Uh, (laughs) I'm going to hand it off to you first and Uh we'll do a bit of back and forth in entry order, but we'll keep our bonus villain series for the end, if we have one. So it all starts with Mr. Terrific, the much-abused Terry Sloan, the awesome Michael Holt. You could have done anything with this IP. What happened? My personal take, I was looking for ways to put an interesting spin on the established character. And I'm a big fan 
of the Michael Holt version of Mr. Terrific. I really dig that character. I think every time he ever shows up in a book, I'm like, okay, this book is going to get good now. Like, I, I figure like he's always a, a welcome addition. The two iterations of this character, though, that I really like, like I just said, are the Michael Holt version and the take that James Robinson took on the Terry Sloan version in the Golden Age miniseries, uh, where he doesn't actually elaborate on it, but it's heavily implied that Sloan used intimidation and shady business dealings to achieve uh, some success post-World War II. The book I'm proposing would expand on Sloan's post-war criminality to where he becomes the head of a corrupt corporation that exploits workers and seeks to amass as much wealth and political power as possible, like Amazon or Walmart. He's trading on his career as a costume hero uh, to do all this and to create a chain of huge discount stores uh, called Terrific Mart. Okay. In, <laughs> in fact, I would really lean more towards Sloan becoming a more evil version of Sam Walton. More evil. More evil, yes. Playing into the folksy grandfatherly image that hides a corrupt and selfish soul. Like he, this is a, a guy who is just despicable, like a, a truly evil version of like Mr. Burns from the Simpsons. Michael Holt is a brilliant college student with a promising future. He's basically a younger version of the Michael Holt we know in the, from the comics. He's hired to be uh, the mascot or spokesperson for Terrific Mark, Mr. Terrific. Kind of like over the years how Ronald McDonald, the new Ronald McDonald was brought in every so often with McDonald's, the Terrific Mark Corporation brings in a new Mr. Terrific and Michael Holt, he's selected because he is uh, made a, uh, a mark as a promising young person with an up-and-coming future, and it's looked at as a big publicity coup for the for the company. What ensues is a conflict that has Holt discovering the unseemly business practices of Terrific Mart while simultaneously being routinely tempted by the wealth and privilege that comes with his new employment. So that would be like the ongoing premise. Pretty topical. My choice for creative team. I debated this in my head over and over again, but my gut told me that this team would work. However, I'm going to just preface it by saying the writer has recently come under some controversial allegations about sexual misconduct. I'm going with the idea like, okay, I'm going to just look at him as a writer. But in real life, this would not be someone I would want to if this was a real book and I was publishing this, I would not think about wanting to put this writer on the book. But I, my, my first instinct was to say Warren Ellis would be a good writer for this book. So we can say someone with that style. Someone with that style, not with that background. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, if I if it wasn't if it was real life, I wouldn't go with Warren Ellis. I would go with James Robinson himself, perhaps. Uh, the artist, because I loved how he depicted Michael Holt in the uh, Strange Adventures book, Doc Shaner, I would pick him as the artist for this book, and I would be interested to see how he draws a younger version of that character. I'd put Doc Shaner on a book every time. That's one of my very favorite artists. He's so good. Yeah, he's fantastic. For me, I amalgamate, of course, I'm going to amalgamate them with someone. So I amalgamated Mr. Terrific with Taskmaster. Oh, wow. And so we have the many tasks of Terry Terrific is the name of the book. <laughs> Terry Holt is an African-American woman who discovered early that she could do anything she put her mind to. Somehow, with the least amount of practice, she had the knack for every sport, every academic pursuit, every art, every craft. Seeing it done is enough to acquire the skills, the sensibilities, and the understanding that's required. So it makes life too easy for her. But changing the world for the better, that's 
actually hard. So Terry writes down a list of impossible tasks to get the world back on track. And she's going to do it with a superhero persona and a team of like-minded experts because I thought it was something Doc Savage about this character. So can she roll back climate change? Can she overthrow corrupt politicians? Stop wars? So even in a make-believe world, and the amalgam universe may not last beyond a year anyway, right? You could break, uh-huh. you could break the world. But the victories really can't be total. It's got to still feel real. But in the aspirational superhero genre, she'll get us part of the way. This is a politically active book. A bit like yours, you know? Uh-huh. The same thing was brought to mind, I guess. Next up is Monel, supposedly the big star of this issue. I amalgamated him with the 31st century Guardians of the Galaxy. So that gives us the Legion of Galactic Guardians. Mon Astro is the leader. <laughs> He's an astronaut from our time who, you know, Buck Rogers-like, is thrown into a future that combines elements of DC's Legion with the Guardians and also 2099. Earth is a corporately owned world, but its shadow masters are Badoon dominators invading other planets and colonies. The Legion makes up the resistance and... Appalled at what's happened to his home, Mon takes the codename Major Valor and joins them. Seems the time trip gave him formidable psionic powers that mimic the Superman suite of powers, a mental force field for invulnerability, telekinetic pushback for strength, etc. And from there, imagine the Legionnaires combined with Guardians and 2099 characters. And that's the book, obviously inspired by the five years later Legion, but still brighter and more hopeful. Yeah, I was about to say we're both envisioning uh, bleak futures as a. Uh, <laughs> as, uh, I wonder uh, why be, be, being tinged by uh, corrupt corporations. Yeah. <laughs> so Monel, did you put him in the future, or are you bringing him in the present? Here's the thing with Monel. Something I've always found intriguing about the character, as he is classically presented, is the fact that when he comes to what was then the present day of Earth and meets Super. Boy, he gets lead poisoning and has to spend a thousand years in the Phantom Zone, uh, and then is eventually released, obviously, by the Legion of Superheroes. What we've never really gotten, at least to my knowledge, and I, please someone correct me if I have missed something, we've never really had any stories about what it was like for him living those thousand years. Like, we've never really had that really detailed or chronicled in any way. So, in my book, Manel will be the central character in a book called Tales of the Phantom Zone. Nice. This book will chronicle the 1,000-year period that Manel spent in the Phantom Zone and his descent into madness as a result. This version of the Phantom Zone will be a physical dimension in which the inhabitants are trapped, save for these small rifts in the barrier between dimensions that allow the inhabitants to enter the real world as intangible, invisible, and inaudible ghosts. Now, I'm making that distinction because that's not anything complete brand new but sometimes the phantom zone it's not a consistent vision of what it actually is and this book i it would need to be very well defined at least i would want it to be well defined and consistent the stories will alternate between monel's conflicts with the phantom zone criminals that are already in the dimension and also uh tales of the dc universe from across the centuries that are told from monel's point of view like i imagine him seeing great epic battles that he can't do anything about you know and that's one of 
the reasons why he starts to descend into madness because he see things can't interact with people, he can't affect things. I imagine like a you know stories where he perhaps falls in love with someone and follows that person throughout their life, you know, but is basically not able to have any kind of real interaction with them. Not, not a lot of tragedy here, uh, but you know, again, mixed in with those stories of him actually maybe preventing the Phantom Zone criminals from getting out, who were maybe found a way he's got to stop them. There's a lot I I think could be done with the concept. In terms of the creative team, uh, the first person that came to mind to write the book is Mark Wade, simply because he's got this encyclopedic knowledge of the DC universe. And I think that if you give him a thousand year period to play with where he could basically tell any story in that time frame that he wanted to tell. I think that he would just have a field day with it. I think he could do some really interesting stuff and you, he would bring out characters, dust them off that we haven't seen before, but being told obviously through the, through the point of view of Monel. And I see the book having a changing roster of artists, depending on the type of stories that are being told. However, one thing I do want, and I would just, I would throw money, at this person as much money as he needed but I would get Bill Sienkiewicz to uh, design the Phantom Zone dimension tell me what this dimension looks like I, I'll, and we'll use that as the template that other artists are to use when depicting the Phantom Zone I would love to see what he would come up with in terms of what look and feel of this dimension would be like well Mark Wade issues of Valor were the best in that series, and he used a lot of continuity yeah. in there. Here's a challenge, because it's an Atari Force member, <laughs> you know, Morphia. So what did you do with her? I decided to bypass the entire Atari Force connection. So I decided just to take her as a character of her own and say, okay, what is there that might make her interesting? Um, and she's actually the one that I had envisioned having a backup feature in, in another book that I'll mention here. But Morphia will start out starting in her own book <laughs> with the possibility of it becoming a backup feature. Uh, Canopia, I guess, is her homeworld, and she is therefore a Canopian. Uh, she has telepathy and limited psionic abilities. However, she is now living in the 31st century. Because she dared to express some individuality among her people who behave as a hive mind, uh, she is exiled to Earth where she begins to work as a psychologist and criminal profiler for Earth's law enforcement. Her stories will alternate between tales about her helping her clients cope with their mental health issues, as well as her solving mysteries she encounters as a result of her profession. I don't see this being able, <laughs> being a book that will last very long. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I just don't think it, I, it may be difficult for it to find an audience. It's found at least one reader. Okay, yeah. Yeah, myself. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, good. I'm glad you would be interested in that. The writer artist on it is is Jill Thompson. I would have her write and draw this story. The reason being is that uh, her work has only gotten better and even if she doesn't, maybe doesn't have the same level of popularity she once did as in uh, other stuff that she's worked on, whenever she comes out with something, it never ceases to impress me. Um, case in point, she wrote a retelling of Wonder Woman's origin a few years ago, uh, the, tale, the True Amazon, that's what it is. And it was a beautiful looking book. There was lots of action in it, but it was 
was the central conflict was very personal and very uh, introspective. And it was just a very well-written, very well-crafted story. So for the type of stories I would want to be in, in Morpheus' book or backup feature, I think she would be the perfect one to tackle it. Sounds good. For me, remember how I, I specifically said that I was merging Monel and the Legion with the 31st century guardians. That's because I need the 21st century guardians for this. <laughs> Gamora and Mantis, there's elements of both in here, combined with Morphia to become the whole Atari Force is in here, in fact. They're called Galaxy Force <laughs> in the Amalgam universe. Martin Quill is the leader of this group of interstellar heroes, and Gamorpha, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, was an unusual member of the Zenkanopian species because, like you said, the same thing, she didn't fully share their hive mind. So uh, in this case, she was able to disconnect and escape when our centuries Badoon dominators killed her entire race. So she eventually joins Galaxy Force. She has this sweet romantic relationship with Quill, even though they are completely incompatible biologically, which, given Quill's reputation as a ladies' man, is even more <laughs> peculiar. It's, it's going to be odd. The team also uh, includes the gigantic baby Groot, Dart the Destroyer, the rat-like Rocket Pack, Thanoside cyborg daughter Black Nebula, and Yontaz, which is a, a diminutive hunter of indeterminate sex. They have big space opera adventures that put them in conflict with basically everyone in space, from the aforementioned Badoon to the Durland Skrulls and the Kuns of Kree. Like, many of these books are about exploring that new amalgam universe. Uh, and this one goes cosmic. Very interesting. You really dug into all the Atari Force there. Very cool. I, I mean, I like that series, so yeah. why not? And this was a chance to, to do it. Also, it's, I find it difficult to write series where the main character is a telepath. Yeah. I think, yeah. you know, like mental powers, it's kind of hard to visualize and what are the stories there's always a telepath in a team but alone yeah. there's a challenge there yeah that's why i picked up on the uh, the telepathic and uh the the counseling yeah that's super interesting all right next up is mother box who i did consider a character who said said gadget earlier but mother box has a sort of personality it's a sentient ai so i included it in our list even though we're already full up with New God stuff. But speaking of the Kree, I just name-dropped them. Motherbox is the next entry. Motherbox, I've amalgamated with the Supreme Intelligence. So the book is called Mother Supreme, and it's about the AI-running Kun society on Kree, taking humanoid form and escaping the failing macho warrior culture she's been forced to cater to for centuries. Advances in technology have given her the chance to upload into a powerful body, and Earth is where she decides to hide out, often having to deal with Kundish agents who want her back, and uh, having to use her techno-empathic powers to survive and integrate. So I want Mother Supreme to keep that motherly mindset. She's attracted to helping kids who, unlike the Kuns, aren't going to be so ungrateful, hopefully. Jury's out. <laughs> but android body or not, I want her to look middle-aged and get us away from the perfect nymph cliche of superhero comics. I'd love to see her work as a teacher or a daycare worker. It's a very common mm. job in the real world, but we never see it in comics or hardly ever. Yeah. So that's that's my mother box. A teacher as the hero. I could dig that. <laughs> I thought you would. <laughs> well, I, I told you previously that the New Gods stuff here is what I really struggled with. And partly because, and I'm going to have to probably turn in my comic book nerd card when I say this, but while I appreciate all the New Gods mythology and have really enjoyed some of the stories they've been a part of, I feel like they are 
overly revered and overly used uh, in the DC universe. And so you're going to find, I'm not going to jump too far ahead here, but you're going to find that my approach to these particular entries, this is where I kind of break the mold and start anew because I'm like, I think that that world has been explored ad nauseum to the point where like, you know, dark side is always the big bad. And I'm like, stop. I, I, I just, I don't need yet another story with these characters. Not to say I haven't read some good stories with the characters. I'm not saying I dislike them, but I'm just like, it's over. I feel like there's overexposure. I get it. I, I'm a, I'm a total Kirby fan. I love the fourth world stuff, but I don't think anybody, anybody's done a really good job with them after maybe Mr. Miracle, but otherwise yeah, it's yeah. not. Um... So my idea was, okay, I, I had three entries here that I was struggling with. And so I decided to make each of them a focal point of a different major or crossover event that would take place within this universe. And mother box is going to be the first, it's going to be the name of the series. And it's a, this epic crossover event that's going to be set in the past. Like I'm talking like hundreds and thousands of years in the past of this comic book universe. The central storyline will center around a mysterious sentient object. I say object because I envision it being something that will always be constantly changing in form depending on uh, the needs that it has at that particular moment. Also depending on the person or thing that is observing it. Like I was thinking more like with uh, Sandman, you know, he would often appear in his book, he would appear as different things to different people. I envision the same thing with this entity of Mother Box. So we never really get a clear sense of what Mother Box is really supposed to look like. I'm on a list. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. The storyline will center around how the different characters in this universe begin to unearth clues that this mother box is responsible for seeding life on planets across the universe. The, the mystery also involves around how the mother box may have influenced the evolution of life on Earth. And the end of the story ends with the creation of a group called the New Gods. So that's how that story. Now, I'll, I'll say this. None of the crossover events that I'm created are dependent on each other. Like, I, I really hate a crossover event where you have to read one and the next and you have to, like, collect everything in order to get a big picture. Each crossover event is going to be in and of itself something that can be followed. And you don't need to have Red Mother Box to read the next one. You know what I mean? Sure. However, I am planning on having the same creative team on all three of the crossovers. And for this one, I want Kurt Busiek as writer, and I want Phil Jimenez to be uh, the artist. The reason I went with Kurt Busiek because he is good at telling epic stories uh, that have a personal touch, like with Marvel's. With Phil Jimenez, I have always loved his artwork, but I was just blown away by his work on uh, Historia, the Wonder Woman book he did, where he has uh, reimaginings or new depictions of the Olympian gods, and they are breathtaking. And I just imagine I would like to set him loose on reinterpreting the new god characters and see what he can do with them and say, you know what, with all due respect to Kirby, 
don't feel beholden to him. You know, do something that you envision, just like he blew out of the water what George Perez envisioned for the Olympian gods when he did his work on Wonder Woman. Do the same thing with the new gods. You know, you take whichever ones you're going to use in the story and just put a spin on them. That's all you, because I, I think he would be the artist to do that and do it wonderfully. I'm really intrigued about what you're doing with the new gods and how it, they're all going to flow into one another, really. And we'll get back to that soon enough. But first, well, first, we've got plenty of other characters before that. Um, <laughs> one of which is a half-pager, Misto, Magician Detective. Uh, this is my turn. I've got to start with this Mort. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. In my take on him, uh, after Richard Carter uh, has begun his career as a professional illusionist and crime fighter, which is in, in keeping with his established origin, he begins to delve into real magic. His intentions are good. He wants to become a more effective crime fighter uh, and help people. He wants to do this despite being warned by the old wise man who taught him the secrets of illusion and sleight of hand. And he was telling him it would be too dangerous to try to go after real magic or try to learn real magic without proper training and guidance. Carter pursues the use of true magic anyway and starts to become corrupted by unseen evil forces seeking to use him as a conduit for their own ends. So he struggles to maintain his moral center. That's kind of like the core conflict of the book. And most stories are ambiguous as to which side, good or evil, had dominance in Carter at the time. Like, I imagine stories like ending, like, okay, that was a happy ending, but was it really? Was there something else going on there that maybe wasn't as pure as it seems uh, on the surface? It is during this time that Carter brings together within the book the first incarnation of the Night Force to help him fight evil supernatural forces, as well as to act as a check against his ever-growing corruption. So this is a man who knows that he has started on a path that is may lead to him causing a great deal of harm or maybe leave, even lead to his own destruction. And he starts taking efforts to try to course correct, to try to like fix it. Whether or not he is going to be successful in that, I will leave up to the writer, which is I'm going, I'm going big here. I decided to go big or go home with this. Neil Gaiman, I'm going to like go after this one. And the artist uh, is an artist he has worked with previously very successfully, uh, Colleen Doran. I would love to see her take on the book. I think that they could put a spin on this mort of a character that would be uh, extremely interesting. Yeah, and with that name power, yeah. you could sell the book even though it's it's an unknown, essentially. I think we hit the similar tone with the characters, because if you read the entry, the guy was flying over Tibet, decided to help someone in trouble, ended up learning the mystic arts. Sounds an awful lot like Dr. Strange. <laughs> exactly, yes. <laughs> so that's who I'm combining him with. Dr. Mystic, sorcerer detective, comes back to America, establishes himself as a magic act, tours the country in search of supernatural trouble. He's not as powerful as Dr. Strange was, is. Mm -hmm. But Richard Strange rather depends on his keen mind, and we play the series as a, a pulp detective book in the style of... I'm thinking Ed Brubaker's Fatale. Equal parts, private detective and magic or Lovecraftian kind of dealing. So I think tonally, we're very close on this one. Sounds like it, yeah. There's another detective character right afterwards, though. Yeah. Nathaniel Dusk. So in this case, I've amalgamated him with Hannibal King, if you remember that character. Uh, Hannibal Dusk is a private eye who just happens to have been a vampire once. But did he really get better? Not quite. <laughs> It's in the name. At dusk, there's a small window between sunset and night, and that's where his vampire persona comes out. 
Does he lose control of the monster inside him? Does he have to go indoors and hide or something? And how did he tame the beast in the first place? And how does daylight savings time affect him? He's going to hate it. <laughs> so this is a supernatural noir, but the monster is Dusk himself. So otherwise, his cases involve ordinary humans, no magical elements. I do want to set this apart from Dr. Mystic, or at least at first. No, I, I would say I would be interested uh, to see how an artist would, one, depict that moment of dusk. Yeah, colors. You have like a golden hour. Sure, yeah. And also, like, what would his uh, vampiric side look like? I find that extremely intriguing, yeah. I didn't venture too far from the established character, but you and I have a similar bent to the character, I think. Um, so there isn't much that I would change about Nathaniel Dusk. Uh, the, the idea of him being a private eye in the 1930s, I think, is I'm a big fan of film noir, and I'm like, give it to me. You know, like I would, I would read the hell out of a book like that. The one element I would add, and this is where you and I kind of are similar, but maybe a little bit different because you said you wanted to keep an obvious supernatural element out of his cases. I would have him work regular cases, but as time went on, more and more supernatural elements would start creeping into the cases he has to solve. He is skeptical. He's a non-believer at first. Like you tell him that there's a vampire on the case, he's going to think you're nuts, right? He's going to think, you know, no, it's just some crazy perp, you know, or whatever. Uh, but he does soon to begin to realize there is something deeper and far more sinister going on in his city than just your like run of the mill crime and sinful behavior. I mean, I look at him as being a private eye who is going to get hired to go try to catch a philandering husband in the act, you know, uh, like snapping pictures or, you know, like, uh, you know, Maltese Falcon type of stories, you know, a very film noir, very noirish type of stories. That sounds very run of the mill and it is, but for me, what would be a point that would draw me to the book is the uh, the artist, the writer artist that I've chosen. That would be Liam Sharp. I picked him because I really loved his work and his his art and his writing on the book, uh, the Brave and the Bold miniseries that he did. And I loved how he began to incorporate elements of fantasy into Gotham City. And I would be interested to see him do something like that with an ongoing detective story. Like, how would he begin to introduce these supernatural elements in a gradual basis, in a regular kind of detective story uh, plot? Sandman Mystery Theater veering on Dr. Occult. But not as obvious. Like, Nathaniel Duss is going to be a regular Joe Schmo, the, the normal guy caught up in the middle of this mess that he wasn't prepared to be caught up in. Yeah. Now... Here's a challenge. Who's who has both negative man and negative woman who are essentially the same character in terms of powers? How did you approach negative man himself? With negative man, I essentially kept Larry Trainer being involved in an accident where he is then possessed by this negative energy, just similar to what happens to him uh, in the Silver Age. I make him, though, a fighter pilot in World War II. And he gets into this accident during a mission, like something because of his accident with these, uh, what was it, sunspots or whatever it was supposed to be. He gets possessed by this uh, negative energy and has to put on the protective wrappings because he becomes radioactive. And he becomes a costume hero fighting for the allies during this time. The tone I look for uh, in the book should be as earnest as possible, meaning trainer is indeed a man trying to do the right thing despite 
the horrible circumstances he now faces. Um, he, but he should come up against some truly horrific corruption. Like I want him to kind of be like the true blue hero as much as he possibly can be. Maybe with the underbelly of like him trying to deal with the tragedy uh, that he's been dealt, but also coming up against some of these really despicable adversaries. Like I don't want him to go up against your typical golden age villain. Some of which uh, I see it like maybe being tied to the creation of the atom bomb. Like how would negative man react to that? A character who is radioactive himself dealing with a situation that may harm people because of radiation, not only the blast itself because of the radiation poisoning that would follow and maybe even the Holocaust. I, I see, you know, him being involved in, in missions that would suddenly find him seeing what was going on in the concentration camps. I see like some really dark, him encountering some really dark stuff. The writer I would love to have on this book would be uh, James Robinson because he loves that the Golden Age era. And I would like to see him try to put a character like Negative Man in that setting. And the artist, don't ask me why, but I kept just thinking I would love to see what Frank Quitely would do on a book like this, like how it would look and what he would do with it. Quitely could actually do that earnestness. But he also does dark. His work on The Authority sure. was dark. Yeah. And there's something interesting about the look of the character in World War II. He could be uh, mistaken for the unknown soldier. You know, there's something. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. For me. Well, you know, at some point in continuity, real continuity, Larry Trainer was combined with a woman and he became Rebus. So I'm stealing a name from the Marvel Universe here and calling him, or rather them, Binary, which was a uh, Phoenix-like identity once used by Carol Danvers in between being Ms. and Captain Marvel. Yeah. So <laughs> the Phoenix Force has been sucked into the Amalgam Universe. It's inside our character and he can be released as a separate entity by binary, who is ironically named because the, the character is actually non-binary or more specifically gender fluid. So unlike Rebus, mm -hmm. we're not talking about two people in one body. This character is called Kim. I make them a Vietnamese American. They were simply born with gender fluidity. Became a pilot, ran a space plane into a radiation field, crashed the whole thing, but now has new urges and feelings because of the Phoenix Force. Can binary keep it under control? It needs to get out. So you might as well sick it on supervillains. <laughs> All right, very good, very yeah, good. Yeah, so negative woman then, I had to go another way. So I've used the Russian connection to amalgamate her with Darkstar of the Super Soviets. Topical and controversial, this really is set in the now, and Valentina Petrovna, though trained in the Russian military, is sick of what her government is doing. The propaganda, mm -hmm. the disappearance of political opponents, the invasion of other countries. So she takes a uh, plane and defects. Concurred with the origin of binary, she runs into that same radiation field. But the Phoenix Force doesn't choose her. So she still crashes. Binary is not all bandaged up, but Valentina will have that look. And she finds she has uh, dark force powers as a result of the radiation. She can project a negative form, just like the original here, but... Uh, she's basically Green Lantern. She can create any shapes with the Dark Force. And she uses those powers to try and reverse Russian policy, take down the regime, help people suffering because of it. 
obviously it takes place in this pocket universe that's not going to last forever. So let's see her get some victories in there. Cool. That's my negative woman. What's yours? Well, my negative woman uh, is still Valentina Vostok, um, and she is a Russian cosmonaut. But I'm going back to when she actually was first introduced to the comics, and that would be the 1970s. Uh, so I want her book to be set in the 1970s. She wakes up amidst wreckage of what seems like a rocket crash in the middle of the Nevada desert. She has no memory of how the crash happened or why she was even in the rocket in the first place. Now, she remembers her life prior to that mission that she was on or whatever was happening. But, like, she's now missing uh, a couple weeks in her life. She doesn't know what was happening there. She is miraculously unharmed, except now she is possessed by a negative energy being. And it functions similar to the way it was when she was first introduced in the comics, whereas she didn't project the being out the way Larry trained her. She actually became infused with the being like she would would turn it on and she would start to glow her story is about her discovery of how and why the crash occurred as well as the connection she now appears to share with Larry Trainer. So the ongoing, his uh, career is done and gone. I think maybe perhaps uh, what happened to him is a mystery. No one knows exactly what happened to him at the end of the war, maybe. And so she begins this search of finding why it feels like to me I was just home, back home in Russia a few days ago. Now I am now trapped. I'm stuck in the United States. Like, what happened? She's not one who necessarily wanted to defect to the U.S., but she is now finding herself having to rely on help from the government or various people in the U.S. to find out what's going on and what has happened. Dug up uh, an older writer on this just because I have always admired her work. But I, I would just be interested to see what she does on this book. And that would be Louise Simonson. I would love to see her take on this kind of character. The artist is someone I've always appreciated, Oscar Jimenez. I would like to see his approach and take on the characters or this particular character. We're, we're, I think we're both doing the let's look at different eras. and Because <laughs> I also have a World War II book that's coming up. Uh, but first... Nemesis. This is the name of an international spy organization founded shortly after World War II by wealthy industrialist Ben Marshall, uh, which is a name taken right from the actual origin of Nemesis. Nemesis hires itself out to clients seeking spy and other espionage services. No moral judgment is placed on the job as long as the client is able to pay the exorbitant fee. Each lead operative in Nemesis throughout the decades is required to give up his or her original life and identity. In return, the operative is given the identity of Thomas or Thomasina Tresser and is referred to as Nemesis when out on missions. Stories will involve spy and espionage plots akin to Mission Impossible, uh, as well as what happens to the operatives who find themselves beginning to feel conflicted about what their missions require them to do. An ongoing conflict will be the various operatives throughout the decades uh, trying to put an end to Nemesis or steer it towards more ethical uses of its resources. And, you know, what happens to them as a result of, uh, of them not falling into line with what the, the uh, organization wants to do. Because I love the work that was done on the, uh, the Grayson book when Dick Grayson was a spy or depicted as a spy. I went with uh, Tim Seeley as the writer on this, uh, minus Tom King, who also did work on the book. And I'm going to get the name wrong. The artist, uh, Michael or Mikel Yanin. 
or Yanin. I don't know if I'm mispronouncing that, please forgive me, Mr. Yanin. You know, I would love to see them work together again and be able to kind of uh, sink their teeth into a book like this and see. And I love it because any of the stories could be set in any era, uh, anywhere between the end of World War One up to the present day. You know, you could jump back and forth. You can make some changes. You can bring like have characters in, a, in previous iterations come back in older versions of themselves. So there's a lot of possibilities with this book. Yeah. And I like the, the whole setup as well. You've got a lot of... Uh, Gray zones, you know, like morally gray areas to explore. <laughs> I, I love I love that kind of ambiguity. That's, that's what's interesting to me. Like, don't give me a book where there is a clear right and wrong. Give me something that where the character is going to be conflicted both, uh, you know, have an external and an internal conflict of some kind, you know, where I'm not sure if I'm doing the right thing here, but I'm going to do the best I can. And I think your stable of writers would appreciate this because it's a, a good breeding ground for stories. I've amalgamated Nemesis with Nick Fury for a book called Tom Fury, Nemesis of S.H.I.E.L.D. <laughs> so in this universe, Tom Fury is the guy who makes sure S.H.I.E.L.D.'s agents have the proper makeup, wigs, costumes, and body movement training to go undercover. But mm -hmm. his special set of skills make him the perfect guy to notice that S.H.I.E.L.D. itself has been infiltrated and taken over by the Secret Council, which is an amalgam of the Council from this entry, and the Secret Empire. So he goes rogue and uses all his skills as a master of disguise to free S.H.I.E.L.D. of these influences if he can, and destroy it if he can't. This is crazy Mission Impossible stuff where he's playing different characters and the reader doesn't even know it until there's like a shocking reveal. Uh, so uh, I want to keep the, the readers guessing but it's really about the, the the hero trying to take down something from within. <laughs> the idea of Nick Fury being in charge of, like, costuming people, that's well, interesting. Tom Fury. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, Tom Fury, sorry. Uh, so he can be Nemesis of S.H.I.E.L.D. See, uh, it's, Amalgam is all wordplay. <laughs> that's all it is. Um, all right, so Neptune Perkins. I was promising a World War II book. So I posit no Atlantis in the Amalgam universe. Instead, mm -hmm. Namor Perkins is just a mutant born with web hands and feet and the ability to breathe underwater, great strength, etc., mm. coming of age in the 1940s, just in time for World War II. This interrupts his marine biology studies and, resentful, he goes on the offensive without benefit of the Allied war machine. He's fighting U-boats, sea-related Nazi and Imperial Japanese villains. And this is really our chance to see the Golden Age amalgam universe. I'm combining characters like Red Raven and Hawkman, the two Miss Americas, mm -hmm. Wizard and Johnny Quick, I really like the idea of like um, using that book to explore, to some extent, the golden age aspects of the universe you're creating. That's really awesome. I like that. Because of the oceans, it can be a more international book. So, uh, and World yeah. War II is, is on a global scale. So yeah, you can introduce characters as guests uh, or supporting cast throughout. What did you do with them? I, I went essentially with the pre-crisis origin of a Neptune Perkins as my springboard. Um, I think post-crisis, uh, Roy Thomas added some elements of classic literature into a Neptune Perkins's uh, origin. I kind of like sidestepped that because I just went with it, kept it simple. Sure. Uh, I, I placed him in a 1940s setting and uh, he is still a mutant 
born that needs to be constantly replenishing his body with seawater to make up for his deficiency in, in salt or whatever the issue was that he was facing. Uh, but he still has uh, the abilities that he's born with as a mutant. However, uh, the twist that I put on him is he doesn't become a part-time costume hero. He instead becomes a modern-day pirate, complete with a high-tech ship and accompanying crew. Perkins and his exploits, they take the media world by storm, like he's in newsreels, newspapers are following what's happening with him and what he does. And he becomes a celebrity criminal, similar to like Clyde Barrow or John Dillinger from the 20s and the 30s. In fact, most of his hijackings at sea are only successful because the victims, quote unquote, are excited to finally be robbed by the famous pirate Neptune Perkins. And I see a running gag being that the ship captain and the passengers will bring extra loot on board for a trip for the express purpose of it being stolen by Perkins. Like this becomes like a tourist attraction. The Burden go out to sea and maybe we'll get robbed by Neptune Perkins type of thing. With the advent of World War II, though, Perkins and his crew sometimes find themselves embroiled in military conflicts, and Perkins uses his mutant abilities and piratical skills to assist the Allies as long as there is something in it for him. Like, he's not, he, he isn't a complete true blue character. I, I think him more as like a Han Solo type of thing. I, I'll help you, okay, but what's in it for me? Like that swashbuckling, you're not sure where he's going to land type of character. Uh, the tone of the book should be largely fun and lighthearted. But like I said, there's going to be elements of World War II coming in, so there's going to be the, the serious moments coming in. And the perfect – this is my favorite combination of writer-artist that I came up with for this. It would be Gail Simone writing the book because I think that she would just have a field day – with this character, just like how far could she go with him in terms of how like ridiculous his celebrity is? What kind of shenanigans could he get up to and on these high sea adventures? The artist, I would love to see Todd Nauck take a stab at okay. this book because I think he has a way of drawing, like making a book look fun, but without it being cloying, without it becoming like too cute. This would probably end up being one of my favorite books in the whole line. <laughs> it sounds fun. And I, you've got a good team yeah. on it as well. Um, yeah. All right. Well, we already know who the the creative team is on your new Genesis book. Yeah. Right? So how do they continue this crossover event? Well, the, the new Genesis is actually the third and final crossover. Now, like I said, the crossovers that I've depicted, they are not necessarily so connected that you have to read them in order. You could, they're in and of themselves, they stand alone. So in this epic crossover event, it's set in the future of this comic book universe. And the main conflict will center around how life on Earth has become increasingly unsustainable and the debate on how to deal with this problem. Some want to stay and fix the planet. Some want to leave and find a new planet to live on. And some just want all life on Earth to come to an end. They just want to burn the whole thing down. The three different factions enlist various characters from across time and space to aid them in accomplishing their respective goals. And so that's where the central conflict is. The ending will involve the return of the legendary Mother Box. And that's all I've got. Okay. <laughs> but, but the writer and artist team would still be Kurt Busiek and Phil Jimenez. Well, we're going to find out what the next chapter, the middle chapter is uh, in a minute. My own new genesis is Tales of New Asgard. And quite frankly, it's the first thing that I ever thought of for this. This, this is why I did the oh, amalgam. Cool. 
because I there was so many fourth world stuff. I was like, oh, how can I adapt it? And of course, the fourth world was born of Kirby wanting to do Tales of Asgard and uh, Marvel not letting him have Ragnarok, essentially, and replacing the gods. So that's not a problem for me. Tales of New Asgard starts with the idea that Ragnarok has come and gone. So we recognize the source of the gods that have sprung out. Uh, Allfather is obviously a new Odin. Wolfheim was Heimdall. Black Hell is the new Hela, etc. They live on a strange planet with a rainbow ring that allows it to fly around the universe. Myth is being reinvented before our eyes. And the Allfather is not only having to distribute domains to these new Asgardians for them to lord over, which puts them in contact with humanity, of course, but having to defend new Asgard from the upstart evil gods led by Thanoside from Titageddon, uh, which uh, combines <laughs> some new gods with Eternals and Deviants as well. It's a Kirby fest. Yeah, yeah. We need heroes, of course, to follow. So uh, much of the action in this series is given to Baldur Lightbringer, leading his forever warriors into battle. We got Fastback the Brave, Viking the Grim, Vostag the Bear, and Lady Barda. Where's... Thorion? <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you asked, because that's where... <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, yeah, I, I'm sorry, yes. Oh, wait a minute, what are you doing with Thorion? <laughs> I mean, the new gods entry leads us to a specific new Asgardian to play with. Or two, because I wanted a buddy series here. So Thorion and Glorious Loki are half-brothers who have adventures together. The powerful but temperamental warrior and then the charismatic devious trickster. A lot of the time, it's about getting out of trouble caused by Loki. So there's a sense of fun to this. It's largely a comedy. These boys are raiding Granny Carnilla's larder, or they're pranking Gore the Sadist, <laughs> or, or coming to Earth to match wits with uh, superheroes, wits and skills. The heroism is often incidental and beside the point. I call it the brave and the bored. <laughs> Very good. I, I like that one. Sounds like a lot. That could be a lot of fun. <laughs> and uh, I'll write it if I need to. So, <laughs> so what's the middle chapter? So the middle chapter is another crossover called New Gods, and it takes place in the more recent past and present of of this particular comic book universe. The story is about the role a new pantheon of gods have played and continue to play in the course of life on Earth. If you remember from when I said it, when I was talking about Mother Box, it ends with the creation of the new gods. And so this, the new gods crossover picks up with like, what did they do in their tenure on this Earth? Uh, it talks about how the triumphs and failures of these new gods have affected all life on Earth inspiring both the noble and the ignoble pursuits of human beings. So they can be like behind the scenes affecting the, the course of human history or maybe taking a more direct role. It, it, there's a lot that can be played with here. The central conflict is a war between the new gods as designed and created by Kurt Busiek and Phil Jimenez and how they enlist the aid of human beings on both sides of the struggle. The present day will be what the, the war and how that's affecting the human race and the super beings uh, that are present, uh, that are part of the present day. And obviously the end would be like, I, I look, I envision it being as humankind being like, I'm sick of these gods messing with us. Let's move on. Right. And th <laughs> this know? is what leads us into the new Genesis book. Exactly. Yeah. Let's stay with Kirby. Newsboy Legion. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right. So Newsboy Legion, it's a book. I Again, I'm sending it back in the 1940s during World War II. See, I've set up some books that could easily have guest stars and crossovers with each other. Bit of a subline. Exactly. And uh, the, the feature is the same group of street kids. I love the premise of these uh, little scamps just running around their neighborhood getting into trouble. Uh, but I would have one significant change. Uh, in Kirby's original version, they're orphans living in a shack. I would make them not orphans, but their fathers are off fighting in the war. All their fathers have, been in, uh, have either enlisted or been drafted into the war in some way. Uh, the stories will alternate between the typical street-level shenanigans early adolescent boys would get into and more serious stories of the boys protecting their neighborhood from encroaching criminal element. Like, you know, maybe the mob is trying to come in, muscle in on their neighborhood, and they've got to do things to kind of prevent that. I would put aside all the clone stuff, all the Cadmus Project, uh, no New Gods connection, no Guardian. Th that, to me, overcomplicates the concept too much the premise itself of these boys who are friends with each other and maybe being inspired by what their fathers are doing in the war doing their part to try to protect their homes this should just be i i believe just a humorously told coming of age book uh, with some serious undertones i like stand by me i see this like being uh really take that tone of the film stand by me and apply it to the Newsboy Legion. The writer I would want on this is Peter David. I was a big fan of Young Justice uh, back in the 90s. He knows how to write young people and give them an authentic voice without it sounding like you're Bob Haney trying to <laughs> uh, trying to, uh, to affect like hip language. Like he really, and, and I, I, I don't say this like I'm an expert, but I've been working with teenagers for almost 16 years now. And he's one of the only comic book writers who I feel gets it right uh, in terms of how teenagers interact with each other. And the artist I'm going with is uh, one, a good friend of mine, uh, Luke Dobb. I love his art, and I would love to see what he would do with the Newsboy Legion. I think he's got a good style for the, the type of stories and tone I would want to see on this book. Yeah, the youthful-looking characters. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that's Jinchi, Daddy-O. So <laughs> for me, well, I had to amalgamate them. So it's called the Newsboys of Yancey Street. So oh. the Things Old Gang, <laughs> right? Uh, amalgamated yeah. with the Newsboys, who in this reality are going to be a more diverse group of kids to match the populations living in big cities today. Their whole thing is getting the attention of a superhero. Uh, which one would depend on the issue? So this replaces Ben Grimm, and the Guardian, you know, in concept. So they can get help rejuvenating the neighborhood, ridding it of a crime, lending support to the community, protecting it from gentrification. So we'll see them stage events, invite Terry Terrific or Nighthawk or what have you. But usually they will comically fail only to fix the problem themselves in some way, perhaps accidentally. Uh, so it's a book about the power of community and grassroots action. Oh, wow. And it's set in the present day. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. So we can yeah. address issues more directly. So that's my Newsboy Legion. Moving on to Night Force. Night Force. Uh, so Marv Wolfman, Gene Colan. It's pretty obvious Night Force has to be combined with Tomb of Dracula. <laughs> I already had a vampire, you know, so it's in the... Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so the book is called Night of Dracula, and Dracula takes the role of Baron Winters here, essentially. He's rounding up various vampire hunters, or at least people who are a danger to him, to keep them under his thumb. He's manipulating them, blackmailing them, whatever it takes. 
He mm-hmm. gives them missions to take out other supernatural entities that might threaten his lordship, uh, get their hands on the Darkhold. What he doesn't know is that they're all plotting against him and hoping to find a way to turn the tables and finally stake the Lord of the Vampires. Or does he know? And it's all going to blow up in their faces? So kind of a suicide squad yeah. kind of, uh, you know, everybody's pulling against the middle. My Night Force kind of connects to my Hannibal... King or, you know, Nathaniel Dusk book. But you mentioned Misto in connection to this team. So how does that work? That is correct. The book focuses on the modern day incarnation of the team that was first formed by Misto back in the 40s, but uh, is later taken over by Baron Winters when Misto allegedly became too compromised by his pursuit of real magic. Winters is an immortal who was an original member of the Night Force team brought together by Misto and claims he usurped control of the group from Misto to save the team from disaster. Now, you may be noticing my rather ambiguous language here about what really happened with the original team because uh, while the current team is going to be battling supernatural threats, the overarching storyline will be the current team trying to find out what really happened to the original team and deciding who they should trust, Winters or Misto. Misto is still around. He His magical abilities have kept him alive. So the current team, I'm not married as to who that team needs to be. Like if, if the writer wants to go with the classic members of Night Force, that would be fine with me. Just the idea is that the current team is now trying to figure out what happened to the original team because they don't quite trust Baron Winters and they don't know if they can trust Misto. So they've got the the struggle of uh, these two would-be leaders of the team and they've got to try to like forge their own way as, uh, through this. And for the writer, I'm going back to Neil Gaiman. I I, I think he could have uh, make these like two sister books, the Misto book and the Night Force book, where he is maybe revealing one thing in another book and uh, having the payoff in the second book or one or the other. But I would also, as an editor, I would say the books need to stand alone. You can't have them be a situation where a person reading one book has to go buy the other book. I mean, that's something that I would absolutely make, which is why the the line would come to a crashing end because I would be going <laughs> against every, every editorial decision that uh, has been made in comics uh, uh, in the last few decades. But again, it would give him an ability to kind of play off what, what he's doing in one book uh, with what's going on in the other. The artist is, I don't, I don't want to say he's a brand new artist, but he's someone who's new to me because I recently started reading the newer Swamp Thing book. And the artist on that is a man named Mike Perkins. I'm not in love with the different incarnation of Swamp Thing and the story itself. I mean, it's, it's good. I'm not knocking it. But the art itself is just really intriguing to me, the way Mike Perkins has presented things. And I'm like, this could be a, a good match for this particular book in creating that that creepy, eerie quality that Gene Colan was always good at, but having a more modern look to it uh, that I think uh, Perkins would bring. We're getting a lot of Golden Age characters and then, you know, later on their legacy. But, uh, yeah. and, and we got a 30th century character earlier that you decided to play into a, like a larger history. What about Night Girl? She's from the 30th century. Well, <laughs> yeah, she was. Well, she's still set in the 31st century. Uh, Lida Jath or Lida Jath uh, has given up her association with the Legion of Superheroes and with superheroics in general to become a homicide detective in the Opal City of the 31st century. 
I've always been fascinated with Opal City. Uh, loved Starman and that city that he created or that he built on was something I thought was a good playground. Her adventures are crime procedurals mixed with her learning to cope with living in a dark, corrupt city. Although she doesn't call herself Night Girl any longer, Elida will use her nighttime strength to assist her in cases as needed and when available. For unknown reasons, at the start of the series, she is estranged from her husband, Rock Crin, and their son, Paul. Uh, a subplot will feature a supporting character, Morphia, helping Lida come to terms with why she left her family and perhaps start working towards some reconciliation. Uh, and Morphia is going to be a recurring supporting character in this book and will help Lida on cases from time to time. And when the Morphia book inevitably fails, she's going to become a backup okay. feature in Night Girl. <laughs> uh, the writer I want on this book is Greg Rucka. He does great detective stories. Um, I loved his work on Wonder Woman. He, he knows how to write women characters. For the artist, with the new World's Finest book, I, I got introduced to the work of Dan Mora. That's not his first gig, but I really got a good look at his work. And I would like to see, I feel like he has this upbeat style but has always has a little edge to it. Like there's something there that isn't like almost like the what like you mentioned with Frank Quitely, feel good images, but that have a little bit of an underside of an edge to them. Like there's something that isn't quite so saccharine and sweet about them. And I, I think Dan Mora has a, has a similar quality. So I would put him on the book as as the penciler. Mine is called Misty Night. Night Without the K. Ah. Night Without the K. It takes place in the present day. The character is Indian American, in this case. Real name, Mercedes Jaff. And has vibes similar to Marvel's Misty Knight in that she's a 70s action star type. Uh -huh. She has a costume that recalls the Court of, of uh, Owls. So it hides her face. She has the night girl powers. The reason this heroine comes out at night is because it's the only time she has super strength and invulnerability. By day, uh, she's a policewoman restricted to a desk job on account of having been shot in the leg in the line of duty. So she has a limp, but it goes away when the powers kick in. A lot of stuff comes across her desk during the day, uh, and she's kind of in a precinct where she can't trust everyone to do their job. So, you know, that's why she has this vigilante side to her. Probably goes after crooked and lazy cops, too. There's another female desk sergeant at the precinct, Drura Wing, also benched, in her case because she got sick and is still recovering. She's loosely based on both Colleen Wing and Infectious Lass, and uh, she, <laughs> she's the one that's, that's going to notice something's off with Mercedes, and she possibly will end up becoming her partner down the line. That is intriguing. I really like that one. Yeah. Well, what about Nighthawk? <laughs> you know, a cowboy star here. Marvel also has a Nighthawk, uh, but I, I'm yes. actually amalgamating DC's Nighthawk with Darkhawk, early 90s hero at Marvel. I'm still mm -hmm. calling it Nighthawk, though. Chris Hawk is a vigilante in the contemporary era. In reality, a young teenager who finds a strange amulet that allows him to turn into a masked adult gunslinger. A magical one. So the guns never run out of ammo, but also only stun living things, even though they seem to penetrate non-living matter pretty well, like a powerful bullet. The shadowy form of Nighthawk can also summon a shadowy mount, he's great with a lasso, etc. And over the course of the year, Chris will learn all about the amulet, how to take other forms using it. It's a cowboy at first because that's something that Chris is interested in. But he eventually can become other pulp 
type figures like a Rocket Age hero, a Jungle King, a uh, Dashing Buccaneer, maybe even a classic cape superhero, not unlike Marvel's Nighthawk. But uh, <laughs> but these are surprises down the line. At first, it seems to be like a modern day supernatural Western mixed in with a sort of uh, like a Captain Marvel or something. He shazams into Nighthawk. <laughs> oh, that's another cool premise. You're doing a really good job with these. I would read almost every one of these books. Wow. <laughs> well, thanks. Let's break the bank. All right. So uh, my Nighthawk, my first introduction to Nighthawk was his appearance in Crisis on Infinite Earths. And it's where he uh, basically had a cowardly death. He runs away when he sees the anti-monitor or the antimatter cloud and ends up being consumed by it. And so that had like a, a feel of like a red badge of courage by Stephen Crane. This is my literature teacher background coming sure, in. Sure. Sorry. That's all right. I studied that as well. <laughs> so uh, my take on the character would have Hannibal Hawks be a deserter from the Union Army. In contrast to Jonah Hex, though, uh, he, Jonah, who he surrenders to the Union Army, he was on the Confederate side because he ended up not being able to stomach fighting to preserve slavery. Like he, uh, in his own origin, Jonah, it says that he joins the Confederacy because he believed in states' rights and that he eventually begins to realize this is just about slavery and he doesn't want anything to do with it. So he surrenders to the Union Army. Hawks, in contrast, he just deserts service out of fear and cowardice. He's too afraid. He heads out west to avoid being recognized and captured for his desertion. And he adopts the name Nighthawk and puts on a mask in order to help those in trouble and to, to protect his identity as well as a way of atonement for his previous acts of cowardice. He feels like he gets no absolution, like this is a constant something that bothers him as he goes from town to town and from adventure to adventure. And he's having to constantly keep moving because uh, maybe he gets recognized, maybe some U.S. government official is there and he's just just wants to leave before it like things get too hot for him. But that's an, an ongoing push and an ongoing conflict for the character. Like, how is he going to deal with what he perceives as his act of cowardice, or maybe he ends up coming to being able to uh, reconcile with it in some way, shape, or form. Similar to how what the protagonist does in The Red Badge of Courage. The writer uh, and artist I see on this, Howard Shaken. But I would ask him to take this book over and see what he could do with it. Okay, yeah, I could see that. I like the idea of like the eternal coward, which is not a, a type we see a lot of in, in comics. Batlash, in a way, you know, in the... But uh, a different attitude. From Westerns to fantasy, we got to do Nightmaster. Absolutely. My take on Nightmaster. Uh, it's a book called The Sword of Night. And the titular mystical sword is being passed from owner to owner through various circumstances. Each owner wields the sword for either good or evil. Like the sword makes no distinction as to what it's used for. Uh, like it's not, uh, it's just a powerful uh, weapon or powerful object. It's not uh, one that has any sort of sentience to it. And whoever has it, they get to use it for whatever purposes they choose to use it. The premise is how the power of the sword is completely at the discretion of the person wielding it, like I just said. And I see various characters coming into conflict, vying for the possession of the sword seduced by its power or wishing to keep it from being used for evil. You can bring in uh, as big a cast of characters as you want. You can bring in superpowered characters, maybe even just regular Joe Schmoes. <laughs> you might be able to, to uh, cross this over with other books as well. I, I, there's a lot that can be done with the premise of this book. 
And uh, the writer and artist I would like to see on this would be uh, James Tiny in the fourth or Tinian, Tiny, and I don't know how to pronounce his last name. And also the artist um, Alvaro Martinez Bueno. I recently read uh, The Nice House on the Lake, and I really like it. And, and I want, would want The Sword of Night to have a unsettling tone. I, I think that they would uh, make this for an interesting read. Well, I like a good Dead Man's Gun type story, you know, where there's a change of the mantle very often. I amalgamated Nightmaster with Kristar. Uh, which has a similar central oh. legend about two brothers, twin princes, each gifted with magical weapons, the crystal sword and the magmace, love combining words, so mm -hmm. uh, they can face <laughs> the demon armies overrunning the land. Moltar, hungry for the throne, betrays his older brother, and the kingdom is lost to both anyway. So like in, this is my inspiration here, like in the never-ending story, Young Jim Rook reads about this in an ancient tome and is transported to a new apocalyptic realm and is guided by warlocks to pick up the crystal sword. He becomes the hero of the land, while his school bully, also absorbed into this, is guided by the demons to become the new Moltar. So the driving action is seeing if these two teenagers who have a home world in common, but not, it seems, the same wish to go home, can work together instead of against one another. And as the ser series goes on, other kids might drop in to this world, like their schoolmate. Uh, there's uh, Janet mentioned in the entry. I would see her in here. Uh, so think Only Living Boy or the more recent portrayal of Amethyst mm -hmm. with Bronze Age toyetic elements like Kristar, uh -huh. but also like Masters of the Universe and th that kind of that kind of feel to it. Oh, yeah. I, I, Mattel would have a field day with that concept. Let them go. <laughs> Let's sell toys. Uh, and that uh, brings us to our bonus entry. This was the last page. I did create one. I've amalgamated the Monitor and the Beyonder, who uh, in the preceding event, like what led to this amalgam universe, it was something called Secret Crisis. Uh, it would have combined and created this this world. And now the monitor from beyond is simply the host of a comic called Amalgam Comics. So if DC and Marvel agreed to send other characters into the bridge between universes, this is where it'll happen. The monitor oh, wow. could also snatch bigger stars, combine them, let them have an adventure and go, nah, and then send them back. Uh, so we could conceivably bring back some of the more popular characters from the original runs, like Spider-Boy, Super Patriot, Dark Claw, or create some entirely new ones for the purpose of that one issue. And at the end of the run, Amalgam Comics is going to have to set up the Secret Crisis finale special that defines the final shape of the Marvel and DC universes and decides the fate of all these Amalgam characters that you've been following for the past 12 months. So uh, it's a little bit of my uh, the umbrella title. Did you have a, an optional bonus book? I did. I did. And it was probably one of the first, <laughs> as I was flipping through the book, I was uh, upset almost that I couldn't go with a villain because I was, it, this is the first one I came up with actually. Okay. <laughs> so it's Monsieur Mala. Now you're, uh, you speak French. Am I pronouncing Mala correctly? Mala, yes. Monsieur doesn't have the R at the end. So Monsieur. Monsieur, Monsieur Mala. Monsieur Mala. All right. So keeping the majority of Monsieur Malat's uh, pre-crisis origin intact, imagine that at the moment Malat was supposed to perform the surgery to implant the brain of his deceased scientist creator into the mechanical body that would become the brain, uh, he instead puts the brain in some sort of stasis and then goes on a series of adventures living his best life 
with the intention of coming back to keep his word and perform the surgery eventually. Now imagine these adventures also include time travel and <laughs> Indiana Jones level action. And this is what I want out of a book starring a, a machine gun wielding talking gorilla. The writer and the artist that I want to see on this would be Mark Miller and Sean Murphy. They wrote a book a few years ago called The Chrononauts that I just, it was an enjoyable romp of a book. Had a good story. Uh, at, at heart were two friends uh, who were just basically jumping through time and causing trouble. Yeah, I remember the book, yeah. I really enjoyed it. And I thought, well, who... Who better to write a book about a time-hopping, adventure-seeking uh, gorilla who <laughs> who's going to end up becoming the sidekick to a silly villain in the DC universe? <laughs> so yeah, the, that idea I was like, yeah, I would I would read the hell out of a book like that. <laughs> Anything with gorilla content is pure comics. You know, <laughs> not th th that's the end. We must follow that well-established tradition that states mm. that we only have enough money to buy one series from the other. Uh, editor's line so which one will it be like you almost got me with the gorilla but not quite there was something else okay. on the list that i preferred so just writing a few things down i liked really liked your your take on uh, the misty knight character and um i really was intrigued by the namor perkins simply because of how it could be used to explore the golden age of the universe that you're creating here. But because of my own personal preference, I was in really intrigued by the Hannibal Dusk book that you mentioned, simply because the idea of him like having this magic hour of becoming a vampire and what that means and, and how that plays into the, the bigger story he is involved in. That would be something that I would be interested to see in a book or I mean, what follows. That's the book I would take. Okay. Interesting. I, I did mention some interest in your Morphia book. Uh -huh. For a while, I was thinking, okay, let, yeah, let's let's follow that book until it becomes Night Girl, a backup in Night Girl, and then just start picking up Night Girl, you know, like cheat uh -huh. cheat the system a little bit. <laughs> uh, but ultimately, the fact that you gave every one of your books a creative team, uh, that's another, like, okay, who do I, who are my writers and artists, you know, who mm -hmm. do I want to follow into a world that way? And uh, and so Monel wins this time around. Monel in the oh, Phantom wow, Zone, okay. I think, has, has that breadth of looking at the universe, a lot of tragic stories, a lot of weirdness. Bill Sienkiewicz is in there. Uh, <laughs> uh, many artists. And Mark Waite is one of, you know, a writer that I can depend on to write superhero comics. Yeah, Monel is, uh, is my guy. And I'm a Legion person anyway, so it's, it's not a big ask. Oh, oh cool. And, and like I said, that's an era of Monel that hasn't really yeah. been explored, at least to my knowledge. So, I mean, that's a pretty significant part of the character's history. So hell, explore it, you know, find out what happened during that time. Why not? Yeah. Dear listeners, it's your time to go to fireandwaterpodcast.com. Tell us what you think. Would you read any of these books? If you were in charge, what series would you offer using these characters? And if you like this content, think about visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash fwpodcast. I hope you had fun with it, Steve. Oh, I did. Absolutely. It was um, a different kind of approach uh, for me. Um, with uh, reading Who's Who. And uh, really, I got to exercise some of my creative muscles with this. So I appreciate you asking me to do this. Well, thank you for trying to experiment with me. I know it's a lot, of, it's a lot more work than just <laughs> sitting into your regular podcast. That's true. That's true. But it was fun. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. So until next time, who's editing? We, we are. are.
superheroes fight each other. That's pretty tried and true. But to have the Marvel and DC universes get smushed together and have characters like Doctor Strange Fate and Super Soldier and Spider Boy, that was kind of the mind blowing part of it. That was just as much fun as the, you know, the big superhero battles. 